for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is deep Sorry. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from your groaning, from my groaning. All night long, I fled my bed with weeping and drenched my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of my, all my foes. Away from me, all who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Well, welcome. My name is John. I'm the pastor of the church. And uh, Hutch is here. I'm glad to see Hutch. That's so fun. Uh, really grateful that y'all are here. I hope that you're coming in today with just a lightness of spirit. It's, I mean, it's for many of you, it's spring break. Maybe those of you who are students may be coming in feeling worn out. Thank God for a break because you're just exhausted. Some of you may be coming in and you're at peace because you're among friends. Others may be here and you don't really know people and so you're feeling a little bit socially awkward. Maybe uh, you're feeling at ease or maybe your blood pressure is up being in a church building for a worship service for the first time in a while. I don't know if you believe the things that we believe or maybe you totally and vehemently disagree with us. I just want to say I don't think that anybody is here by mistake. I think the Holy Spirit has been at work drawing you in toward the Lord Jesus and toward Christian community. And so I want to say to each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus, you're welcome and you're wanted and I'm glad that you're here. So sadness is what we're talking about today. It's part of our emphasis in the season of Lent on, on expressing some of these big, deep emotions, and the Psalms are giving us a way to do that. Um, the season of, uh, the word Lent comes from a Middle English word that just means spring. It's not all that fancy, but it comes from a historic Christian practice of this season that leads up to Holy Week and, and Resurrection Sunday of the church being introspective and reflecting and repenting of our sins. And it was, it was often the case that people would, would be discipled for two years or three years in anticipation of the day when they were baptized. And so in solidarity with these catechumens, these people who would be joining the church through baptism, the church entered into a season of repentance. On the one hand, reflecting on our mortality, we are dust and to dust we will return. On the other hand, reflecting on our need for redemption. Because of our sins, we deserve death, therefore we should, we should repent of our sin and accept God's grace. The season some people have described as like the bright sadness. It's like a dark, long tunnel, and the end of it, there's a bright light. And so we're leaning into some of these dark themes or themes of repentance, and uh, that's why we're talking about sadness today. But don't worry, it is going to get lighter. Next week, we're going to talk about rage. <laughs> 
And then the distance of God, really keeping it very, very light. We will end on a light note talking about joy. Uh, but today is the second Sunday of the season of Lent. We'll go back 100 years. It's uh, November of 1914. And there was this, this really brave explorer who took a crew uh, of 27 people and they hopped on a ship. They so sailed out of South Georgia Island, making their way to Antarctica uh, via the Weddell Sea. And they were doing something that was really daring on this three-masted ship. They wanted to make their way to Antarctica and then walk on the ground. Well, they were about a month out and they got into some icy waters and they couldn't make any more progress. They couldn't break through the ice and so they sit there for a month. Uh, another month or two goes by and they're still sitting there and they're realizing we're definitely not going to get through this. In fact, at least not until a big thaw comes. So they're thinking, come fall, come September, we're going to be okay. But by the time they get to September of the following year, they are still stuck in the ice just trying to survive the brutal temperatures and, and, and the fear, the psychological torment of wondering what is going to happen to them. Well, by September, the ice is starting to put really intense pressure on the whole of the ship, which was named Endurance. And by the next month, water started to stream into the ship, and they had to abandon ship. For several months, they were hopping from ice flow to ice flow, just trying to survive. And then the worst thing imaginable happened. Endurance began to slip beneath the surface of the water. For six months, this, this crew of 28 people survived on the ice flows before they finally got access to their lifeboats. They piled into three lifeboats and made this fantastic, harrowing maritime uh, journey. They went something like 346 nautical miles to make it to um, this particular island. And Ernest Shackleton, who had led this expedition, safely got his entire crew to dry land. The first time they'd stood on dry land for 500 days. Not a life was lost, though he did lose a couple of fingers. He'd given up his gloves to one of his crew members, and he lost them to frostbite. Well, eight years later, uh, Shackleton was buried, not before trying the same trek again. Eight years later, he was buried, and a hundred years later to the day, in fact, this very week, the remains of endurance were discovered by a crew. They've been looking for this ship for a hundred years, and this week, they found it. 10,000 feet below the water, the wreckage was perfectly preserved and easily recognizable after all these years. You can see that the masts themselves are still intact, and in great bold letters on the back of the ship, you can see endurance. And they were amazed at these underwater cams, seeing like it looked like they just jumped off before it went underwater, and everything was preserved so perfectly after all these years. Well, like the ship Endurance, many of us have traumas. We have really great big feelings that uh, exist beneath the surface of the water of our hearts. We've got joys and pains and griefs and frustrations and things that have happened to us that are preserved and unexplored within the confines of our hearts. And the memory and the effects of what has happened or what we experience have experienced 
endures, though we may deny it. In the words of one songwriter, the the shadow of that sorrow still follows you around. And we act out of the lack of resolution within our hearts, that unresolved trauma, and, and sometimes that grief when we don't deal with it. Or you think about your parents or your grandparents, things that they experienced. In the absence of dealing with some of those griefs, we actually pass them on to the generations that follow, though sometimes they don't even know your own family history well enough to name what has happened. You see, it's really difficult to heal from something that you can't name. It's really difficult to to recover from something that you can't point at and validate and say, this happened. Well, so many of us, unfortunately, are spiritually and emotionally constipated. (laughs) There's this stuff that has happened in our lives or has happened in our family history, and this stuff needs to work its way out of us. But some of us are just backed up, and there are problems when that happens, as many of us can attest. This is a funny metaphor, isn't it? It has to work its way out, or it causes problems on the inside. What we need is a way of being honest, a safe way of being guided through naming some of the difficulties that we've faced as individuals and as families and as communities, ways of being honest, of bringing to the surface our hidden and underwater realities, the complexity and the breadth of our life experiences in a way that leads to our wholeness and healing. And for thousands of years, one of the, the, the tools that the people of God have used of naming the things that they've been through and processing life has been the book of Psalms. It's the biggest book in our Bible, Bible, Bibles. It's like smack dab in the middle of it. And Charles Spurgeon, who really famously has written about uh, the Psalms, said this in his introduction to his seven-volume commentary. He said, in these busy days, it would be greatly to the spiritual profit of Christians if they were more familiar with the book of Psalms, in which they would find a complete armory for life's battles and a perfect supply for life's needs. Here in the Psalms, we have both delight and usefulness, consolation and instruction. For every condition, there is a psalm suitable and elevating. The book supplies the babe in grace with penitent cries. When you're learning how to be a Christian, it teaches you how to repent. And for the perfect saint, it gives them triumphant songs. Its breadth of experience stretches from the jaws of hell to the gates of heaven. The Psalms give us, they're like our tutor in learning how to express complicated realities to the Lord. And last week we looked at how the Psalms give us a way of learning to be honest. And today we're going to look at one of the ways the Psalms gives us training in how to express those primal emotions like Sadness. And Becky, thank you again uh, for sharing so willingly. Uh, In the Psalm 6, which we just read, fits into this category of biblical poetry called lament. Uh, Lament is like naming difficult realities, sad stuff. And in the book of Psalms, we have uh, several different kinds of lament. We have individual lament, where someone, like in Psalm 6, is naming something difficult that they've gone through. And there are also uh, communal songs of lament. It's somewhere in the 120s in the Psalms, there's one that says, we sat by the rivers of Babylon and we wept. Do you know the story of the people of Judah? They've been exiled from their homeland. They find themselves in a country not their own. 
feeling that God has abandoned them. And there in Babylon by the rivers, they wept. It was a communal song of lament. Uh, some of you, uh, well, I assume all of you go to the bathroom. If you've gone to the bathroom in this building, uh, you, you walk down the hallway and turn to the left, and just there on the left, there's a, a black and white picture of a couple. And some of you know the story there, others of you won't, but Joe and Beverly Spence were members of our church community and, and, and loved them so dearly. I've known Joe and Beverly since I was 12 years old. They did marriage counseling with us. We, we loved them so dearly. Joe was coming in in a matter of weeks as our new board chair. Just great, godly people. Almost every piece of furniture, many pieces of furniture uh, that are in this church building Joe and Beverly built for us. And so you can imagine our surprise when uh, at the very beginning of March in 2020, we learned that they had very tragically and suddenly died. And our church was reeling from this news. It was unexpected. This was not something saw, someone saw coming. And if you know the details, you know how tragic and shocking it was. And our church got together that night. And we just, we had to hold a service of lament. And we read a psalm together just to name as a, as a, as a, a church family, this happened to us. And we named our griefs to the Lord, and we, we started to pray for all of the people who would be affected and who were the helpers in the situation. It was a psalm, a time of communal lament. The, the psalms of lament have a really predictable structure in the Bible, this three-part structure. It begins with a complaint. Something has happened that has elicited our, our deep grief or sadness. The complaint is followed by some kind of petition where we are asking God to intervene, to do something. And then in one way or another, the psalm has a form of, of resolution. But the prayer is at first motivated by a complaint. That's been the genesis of a person crying out. Eugene Peterson said this about uh, prayers and prayers of lament. He said, the primary language of prayer is people calling out their trouble, pain, guilt, doubt, despair to God. You know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Pain is the mother of prayer. Something has happened and you just need to, God to hear it. So maybe their lives are threatened. If they don't get help, they'll be dead or diminished to some critical degree. The language of prayer is formed in the crucible of trouble. That's why for many people, they would never wish to go back to that difficult season, but they never felt closer to God. The, the language of prayer is formed in the crucible of trouble. When we can't help ourselves and we call for help, when we don't like where we are and we want out, when we don't like who we are, we want to change, we use primal language, and this language becomes the root of prayer. Uh, David's complaint begins in verses 1 through 3 of the psalm. He said, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm faint. Heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? The John Odom paraphrase of this is, is Lord, go easy on me. I, like, I'm not in a space where I can handle you critiquing me right now because I'm worn out. Throw me a bone and be nice to me. I'm exhausted and I feel like my bones ache. My soul is bearing the unbearable. How much longer do I have to deal with this? If we were looked back on our own life experiences, some of you have gone through grief and pain unimaginable. And for it to affect you so deeply that you feel like your bones ache, some of you know what that is like. 
And we could, we could pass the mic and all of us would just be, you know, in the fetal position in tears, thinking of the pain and sometimes the enduring pain that many of the people in this room have gone through. And it's sobering to think about some of the suffering that, that we will all face. Ultimately, the, the ultimate vulnerability or suffering of death. That's something we'll all experience unless the Lord comes back before we die. Maybe your difficulties are not quite so pronounced. It's not like you had a marriage fall apart, but maybe your kid hasn't slept for a couple of weeks and communication is short between you and your spouse and money is tight and, you've, you know, the kid got sick so you couldn't go to group and have like a kind of social release of your pressures and so you just don't feel as close to God as you once did and it just feels like the, the stressors are piling up. Maybe your situation is uh, more dire. Your marriage is threatened. You're in a chronically unhealthy work situation. The vulnerabilities you're facing in your body are having a psychological effect on you in a very real way. And we don't need to compare or relativize our sufferings. We can validate the things that each of us are going through, but we can all relate to the idea that sometimes we just feel overwhelmed. Sometimes we feel like we're going through that crucible of trouble, as Peterson said, and it produces in you a pain point that you'd really benefit from naming. Or sometimes beyond the point of exhaustion, you can't pray for yourself. You couldn't even begin to name things because it's like, where would I even start? And the best you can do is just weep. I think church is for weeping. (laughs) Honestly, I, I cry at church more than almost anywhere else. It's like my soul just knows it's time to exhale. Spurgeon said so beautifully, thinking of those moments where your pain is greater than you can name, he said, weeping is the eloquence of sorrow. It is an unstammering orator, needing no interpreter but understood of all. Is it not sweet to believe that our tears are understood even when words fail? Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers and of weeping as a constant dropping of importunate intercession which will wear its way right surely into the very heart of mercy despite the stony difficulties which may obstruct the way. And so beautifully and tenderly he said, My God, I will weep when I cannot plead, for thou hearest the voice of my weeping. David, having named his pain and his exhaustion to the Lord, transitions to asking him to do something about it. We see this in verse 4 when he says, Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. The language of turn suggests, I don't feel like you're facing me right now. Like, listen to me. Turn and face me. Do something. Intervene. I need your help. And then he's like, I'm not done complaining. Go back to verses 5 through 7. I've got more to say to you. He said, look, God, what use am I to you dead? Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? Come on, I'm worn out with groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. David has made his request to the Lord. Turn to me, answer me, intervene. And he's saying, God, I can't go to sleep again, just crying myself to sleep. He's further justifying his request and does some more complaining and lamenting to the Lord. And If I were to give you the assignment of paraphrasing David's words in your own language, I hope that you would appreciate that there's a certain inelegance to it. 
It's really not altogether super fancy language. David is not self-invalidating. It's raw, and he's mad, and he wants God to do something. He's feeling ignored. You think about what does that that do for us? How permission-giving is that to us and thinking about the way that we can talk to the Lord? John Calvin definitely saw this. He said, here in the psalm, we have permission given us to lay open before God our infirmities, things we would be ashamed to confess before men. Now, you might be totally embarrassed if other people read your prayer journal, the things that you were actually saying to God. You might not want to share that with others, but he is saying we're given permission here. We're model, David is modeling for us that we can talk to the Lord in this unrefined, real way and name our griefs to Him. The psalm begins with this complaint. It leads to a petition and then a little more complaining. And there's this plain ask for what David wants of God. But then the psalm comes to its structural end with a form of resolution, which we have in verses 8 through 10. David says, Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Now, I wish that David had provided the backstory for every one of his psalms. We have to do some guesswork trying to recreate the context of this here. But uh, what's clear is that David knows that the Lord has heard him. He has not been a critical sharer. He's said the things that he's thinking. He has been plain in what he's asking of the Lord. And then at the end of the psalm, he's, he's finding a way to come back to a truth that he can sit in. He's, he's, he's finding this, like, this middle ground where he can rest. He knows the Lord has heard him. He has said the thing he needs to say. And now he's coaching his soul to return to a place of trust. Now, sometimes in the Psalms, the resolution is, is not quite so tidy. Sometimes the resolution is, so break their jaws. <laughs> or like, if you don't help, I'm just going to die. Sometimes it's not, sometimes you don't have, you don't, like in, in the darkness of your own mind, you can't see a way out. You can't think of a pretty bow to wrap around the end of it. And so you just say, this is my reality if you don't intervene. But I think more often than not, the psalmist finds some way to come back to a posture of trust. I think of, okay, what else is true? Ben mentioned um, Noel's dad, Garth, went to be with the Lord. And he'd been in the hospital for, for some time. He's a great man. Garth and, and Susie, great people. They would visit us in the old days and sit on the front row and just they just loved the Lord. And we were singing that song at their memorial service in Amarillo. And I tell you, the impact of that song hits differently when you watch uh, a spouse and three children singing their guts out, Christ is my firm foundation. They absolutely are feeling grief. They absolutely are feeling like, why didn't you heal him? And they're also bringing their souls back to a reminder of what's true. He's going to make all things new. He he hasn't failed. It hits different. I want to give you guys a, a homework assignment this week. 
uh, and, and it's to write your own psalm of lament. It's actually not all that difficult. Some of you may be thinking like, what a fun use of spring break, <laughs> write your own psalm of lament. Great, John. And you may be thinking like, life is pretty peachy right now, I don't really want to do that, but you might think empathetically as you, as you talk to the Lord, thinking through the lens of lament. You might think about a friend who's waiting on an answer to prayer, or you might think about something going on in the world. Imagine that you're, a, you know, a, a, a parent or a pregnant mother in the Ukraine right now. You could write a psalm of lament thinking about people like that, but I want you to encourage, I encourage you to write your own psalm of lament. It could be as simple as three sentences. Uh, sentence one or stanza one is just a complaint. You guys are great at complaining. <laughs> We all are. What do you want to complain about to the Lord? And without filtering yourself, inelegantly, just say it. This stinks. Name that thing to the Lord. It could be something going on in your life, something that's going on in the life of a friend, something that's going on in the world. The second theme or the second sentence is just, what do you want God to do about it? Again, I asked the question last week, if you were being really honest, what would you say to God? Uh, Here, if you're being like the the most honest thing that you want to ask for, what would you ask God to do? You've complained about it, now you're asking Him to do something about it. Uh, And then, what's a truth that you can come back to and stand on in the middle of it? Now, maybe you're in a place where you're so overwhelmed with your feelings that you can't find something like a silver lining in the middle of your situation, so maybe you need to end it with like, slay my enemies, break their jaws kind of thing. That that works too. Both of those kinds of psalms are in the Bible. We've got permission to name those things, but what do you want to complain about? What do you want to ask God for, and what's a truth that you can come back to and stand on? Uh, We gather for prayer every Thursday at noon, and, and, and a couple of days ago, I shared with those who were here the the structure of a psalm of lament, and we read, I think it was Psalm 10 together, and kind of looked at the structure, and then we made space for everyone to go write their own psalm of lament. And a couple of people shared, and it was like, woof, it was really moving. Uh, And and the the content of these were very everyday kind of griefs. Um, One person, um, through tears, prayed, why do my kids struggle so much? It's just like the, the complaint of a parent who's just so tired, wondering if their kid's, you know, growing up in the way that they should or, or, you know, matching up with others in the way that they need to. There's complaint and there's petition and there's resolution. I wrote two psalms of lament this week, not my normal practice. I'm not trying to show off, just trying to practice what I'm sharing with you. One of them um, was, was a prayer of lament on behalf of someone else who hasn't had the answer to prayer that they wanted and I'm sad about it. The other was much more like every day. I heard a prayer of lament about something I'm really excited about and having to wait on, and it's irritating me, and I wanted to name that uh, to the Lord. Uh, What I want you to notice is just the ordinariness of these complaints. And the Psalms give us a way of dealing with them with the Lord. David Taylor in his book on the Psalms said, look, We are not the first people to experience doubt, the Psalms remind us. Our experiences of anger and depression are not original, even if they are personally felt as if for the first time. Others have been there. Others have crafted words in faith that bear repeating. We stand in a tradition as the people of God, and that tradition hands us over to good words. 
I think the greatest failure that any of us could have in this, in this topic would not be praying something stupid or something bad. I think that our, our biggest failure would be not praying at all. Uh, Emily and I have now been together uh, 20 years as a couple, which is shocking because I'm only 22 years old. And it's funny the things that you learn over uh, the years, and Emily and I have learned that we relate to words very differently. Um, some of you will understand what I mean. When Emily is processing ideas, the words flow freely. And I will ask about, okay, you use this particular word, and she's like, oh, don't pay attention to that. It's just words. <laughs> and for me, when I talk, I feel like I need to be prepared to etch into stone every word that I say. And it's just very, very different. And so for me, prayer is actually kind of a difficult topic because I am constantly self-filtering. I'm constantly, you know, gosh, when I started studying theology, I, I made my, my prayer life so much worse because I'm like, well, now I have to play, pray theologically correctly. And, I, blah, 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 blah. and it resulted in, in, in a struggle over a period of years of, of not praying enough. And I don't mean that in like a you're not praying enough kind of way. I mean, just not sharing stuff with the Lord that I need to. I think for, for me and for perhaps many of us, it's that inner critic that keeps us from, in an unfiltered and relaxed way, just saying the things that we need to say to the Lord. And thinking that we have to be perfect or get everything right or not say anything rash, that we're going to get in trouble, uh, you know, we, we pretend that we're not broken. And you wonder, like, do we think we've actually fooled God? Well, he's pretty impressive after all. David Taylor goes on to say, in the end, to ignore these words or to choose more polite words is to believe that God cannot handle our humanity. But God has not forgotten. God's not run out of compassion. In Christ, He suffers with us. In Christ, He shares our brokenness. He, too, knows what it's like to pray with loud cries. He, too, grieves and feels distress. He, too, weeps. He, too, has felt abandoned and forsaken. It's like, do we think that we will surprise Him by the things that we might say? Do we think that we might be able to impress Him by being eloquent and lovely? No, he, he wants to know the full picture of our experience. And the Psalms model for us this complete, robust way of processing all of our joys and griefs and frustrations and pain points with the Lord in prayer in a way that is free of shame, in a way where we can say, slay my enemies or break their jaws without fear of retribution. This is the, the way in which we process our way into wholeness. So I wonder for you, thinking about your life or even your family story, what shipwrecks, great or small, remain preserved under the surface of the water of your heart? What's a sadness or a grief or an insecurity or a pain point that, that you've never processed with the Lord? Now, it really annoyed, it's really annoyed me over the last couple of years that I would see people from high school days, and I, I would have this trigger of insecurity being around them. Like middle school is the absolute most difficult. And uh, some of you will know what it's like to see people and it, it takes you back to that time where you felt insecure or lonely or something and realize, ah, oh, there's something there I have to deal with. I do not want to. 
And the Lord's helping me. I wonder what sadness or griefs do you need to name to the Lord? What voice do you need to give to your own pain? Not in the interest of just being dramatic or therapeutic. No, it's just in the interest of being whole and being well. Or it could be that it's not your own pains that you need to name. There, there are family and generational griefs that you need to name. Or you feel empathy or compassion for someone that you really care about. And you need to lament to the Lord their own frustration or their own brokenness, or you might pray communal prayers of lament on behalf of the world. And, and there are those moments where, where something just breaks your heart. I remember where I was sitting in, in like 2012 at Asbury, watching a New York Times video of watching this family running through the streets of Aleppo, Syria as shelling was going on, and they had little kids with them the age of my kids, and it broke my heart, and I just wept. What pain points of the world do you need to offer to the Lord in intercessory prayer? And I think a word of good news for all of us is in our inability to pray, our lack of maturity in praying, and our weakness in even knowing what to pray, our forgetfulness to pray, that Jesus holds us in the strength of His prayers for us. That Jesus, is the, the author of Hebrews says, is our great high priest who, who knows what it's like to suffer, to be tempted in every way, and yet without sin. And so Jesus, who knows what it's like to be a person, is pulling for you and pulling for me at the right hand of his Father, praying for us. In Romans 8, it says, the Holy Spirit, who knows our minds and also knows the minds of the Lord, intercedes on our behalf with groans that are deeper than words. And so sometimes not being able to pray or not knowing what to pray, the Lord Jesus holds us in the strength of His prayers for us, and the Spirit intercedes on our behalf to the Father. And so even when we can't pray, the Godhead is pulling for us. And I think we would be amiss to, to not remember in moments like this that the things that grieve our hearts grieve the heart of God, and what is wrong will not be wrong forever. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride beautifully prepared for her husband. God's dwelling place will be among the people, and He will be with them and be with their God and wipe away every tear from their eyes, saying, Behold, I am making everything new. The pain that we feel is worth naming, and this pain will not last forever. For a God who is faithful and true will return to restore and to renew all things. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know the heart of every person. You know the vulnerabilities that each of us bear, the worries about children, the desire for spouses, the frustrations of trying to make ends meet, of not having enough of us to go around, the desire to have purpose in, in different seasons of life, even after work. You know all of the things that we feel. You also, thinking, Lord, about the, the world, how many people are living in true suffering, true vulnerability, and there's not going to be a neat and tidy end to their story in the near term. And so we just pray with trust, Lord, that you hear our prayers. And I pray that in the, in the waiting, as David prayed, how long, Lord, how long? 
I pray as we wait for a breakthrough, as we wait for healing, as we wait for our marriages to be restored, as we wait for God to answer those those carnal, those deep primal prayers that are born of suffering, I pray that you would give us hope as we wait, that you build up our faith and build up our courage. Give us the grace to continue trusting even when the prayer is not answered in the way that we want. I pray that you'd increase our own pain threshold to be able to name to you the things that are hard for us to name. Like Becky shared, you know, we're scared of naming our sadness lest we give into it completely. I pray that as we are just candid with you and honest with you about the things that we think and feel and the way that we've experienced the world, that you'd send your perfect peace. Lord, uh, there are people here who are suffering in their physical bodies, and I do pray that you'd heal them in the name of Jesus. There are people who are worried about other people in their lives, and they can't control them. They wish they could. Give them the grace to trust you, and we pray that you would intervene and break through for the glory of your name. And for all of us who are just the walking worried, who have desires that might not show up, you know, on a, on a, you know, a chart. It's not like it's a catastrophe, and yet it's hard. May we sense your divine ear beckoning us to speak to you. And Jesus, as we come and receive communion, I pray that it would be much more than just uh, eating a cracker and drinking a shot of juice. But may it be a means by which, through the Holy Spirit, we experience the power and the presence of the risen Christ now pulling for us at the right hand of the Father. Do the things, Lord Jesus, that only you can do. Heal the sick, encourage the weary, unite the church, and give us the grace to be candid with you. pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.